Okay, guys, welcome to the Physio Plus Fitness Podcast. Um, I've got Glenn with me again, and we've got a special guest today to talk about ACL. Really, really excited about this. So we've got Ender King um, with us. He's a sports physio, strength and conditioning coach, researcher, and educator. Um, he's a head of performance rehab with Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin, Ireland, um, and has done a PhD uh, exploring the influence of um 3d biomechanical analysis on outcomes after acl recon so he's a literally the perfect person to talk to about acl rehab me and glenn have both had acls which we were just discussing a minute ago so uh we'll be picking his brains and and yeah really really excited to talk to to, to ender about the acl rehab so firstly you want to say a big welcome and thank you for coming on the, the podcast ender and maybe the first question i had was maybe just to maybe briefly discuss you know what what got you so interested in acls and you know what was the the thing that sort of drew you down that pathway yeah it's interesting i'm, I'm not i think you guys are better placed to talk about acls i often wonder if i ever had an acl injury you know the way when you have your own injuries you kind of you better understand them um but i, I won't be signing up for an acl injury just to better understand them again <laughs> but um I, I i've been very fortunate um in my career that opportunities came around based on, on where I work. So I've been working at sports surgery clinic for a long time now, um, about 2008. And um, it, it, it's a very busy, primarily orthopedic hospital um, with a large sports medicine rehabilitation component uh, within that um, and has always had a, a very uh, strong reputation for, for knee surgery. Uh, in, in particular based on, on the practice of its director of medicine um, and, and founder, a guy called Ray Morn. So the clinic would do, you know, up on about a thousand ACL reconstructions a year for, for well over the last 10 years. And so it's like anything else. When, when you see lots of something and you, you gain an interest in it, you see the outliers, you see what works, what doesn't work. And um, it, it, my, my interest in the area came partly from exposure and then partly from having a lot of the same type of, of patient and athlete to work on. And from, from having questions around, you know, so you, you take Ray as an example, and he's doing six or 700 reconstruction himself a year. And, and despite the consistency and the continuity and obviously the skill with which he, he's doing them all, um, the degree of variability, not masters, but the degree of variability in outcomes um, in particular in terms of, of rehabilitation status at, at certain thresholds, whether that's six months or nine months or 12 months. So, you know, given that they're, they're more or less having the same injury and given that they're having the same, you know, expert surgeon or high volume surgeon doing them, wh where is the inconsistencies out of it? And, and when people are constantly asking you, when can I go back to play? what answer am I giving them? And why am I giving them that answer? Am I giving the same answer to one athlete and a different answer to the other? Or if, if the surgeon is asking me, how are they getting on? Well, well what am I waiting my opinion on? And um, is it, you know, how do you feel? I feel good. Well, then everything must be good if I feel good. But like everything else, you feel good until you don't feel good. And so, um, yeah, that, that, that's where my interest has come. And then we were quite fortunate that the department at the time was uh, led by uh, Dr. Anna Falby, who's now head of uh, medical for, for World Rugby uh, and our colleague, uh, Dr. Andy Franklin Miller, who's the director of sports medicine. And I mean, Andy had a big interest in biomechanics and, and could see it as being a, a key uh, metric uh, in terms of, of, if you want to call it movement diagnostics, but also um, in terms of, of quantifying the quality of the rehabilitation that we were doing. 
Um, and so he convinced the clinic and the board to pay a nice sum of money to uh, put a couple of biomechanics labs within the clinic. And I mean, it's, it's, it's changed all our practices and, and is now it, partly what, what, what the clinic is, is well known for, but also it's, it's the baseline standard of care and that that's what the, you know, that's what their expectation is, is that this is part of my ACL journey and my pathway. And it's, I'm not saying it's as important as a surgery because that's an nonsensical comment, but the feedback and, and the input I'm getting and how I act upon it is every bit as important to the success of the outcome as the quality of the surgery that was done. Um, and that's, again, when, when you, when you and, and when you see surgeons from other hospitals referring in for testing, that's when you know something about the, the pathways obviously having access. So, um, yeah, along with an answer, but, it, it, you know, part luck, part opportunity and, um, like like everyone else, you 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 have questions that come from the athletes or patients or injuries that you see, and you've some answers for some of those questions, and you don't for others, and then you kind of things evolve from there. And one of the things or I thought a place that we could maybe start in terms of just discussing ACL injuries as you know as a whole would be sort of risk factors for that. So. Is there, in your mind, is that even before the injury happens, are there things that people can do? Are there things that, that athletes can do that will limit their chance of ACL? Or is it an injury where it's one of those things that you're just unlucky and you land in a position that's awkward and unfortunately it's just one of those things? So, you know, is it something you can prevent? I know you can't always prevent it, but is it something you can reduce your risk factor? Yeah, well, there's certainly enough high quality evidence to show that with exercise intervention you can reduce ACL injury and, and in, in particular in female athletes and um, so that's that's well documented well shown in the literature now what exact component of the exercise is most beneficial is is um, still up for grabs and I have, I have some thoughts about that when I talk about re-injury later on but um, certainly Exercise and exercise intervention and prevention programs have been shown to have a dramatic effect on, on ACL injury rates, in particular in female uh, uh, participants. Uh, in terms of modifiable risk factors, a, a lot of the known risk factors are non-modifiable um, in that we know that female in, uh, athletes have a higher uh, susceptibility. There are anatomical and hormonal reasons that probably drive that that and as, as those of us involved in, in movement there's very little we can do about those factors um, there's obviously genetic factors in that there are those uh, cluster of brothers or sisters or mom and dad and, and kids who are, are predisposed to it so there is undoubtedly a genetic component to it whether that's the type or the nature of your collagen um, or the anatomy of your knee joint and how that's passed down that undoubtedly is, is consistent with it um, and, the, and the biggest risk factor is, is sporting participation. Like, you know, there, there certainly is a lot of talk about you know, younger athletes being at higher risk. They're only higher risk because they play more sport. You know, and, and not only play more sport, but play more high-risk sport, or at least certainly high-risk for ACL injury. And so when you, when you hear about you know, <clears throat> high levels, of, you know, the, 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 the issues in, in, with youth athletes, it's not really youth athletes, it's, it's you know, those playing a lot of sport and especially a lot of pivoting and changing direction sport. And, and that's different than, let's say, a 12 or a 13-year-old that does the race. Yeah, I mean, that's, assuming it's non-contact in age, there's, there's clearly something not right there because that's not a large cohort for doing it. But, um, you know, if you're playing pivoting and change direction sports, you know, even with the best 
prevention programs in the world, there is going to be knee injuries, whether that's contact or non-contact in nature, because sometimes, as you say, you'll just land in the wrong position. Um, uh, but there is certainly plenty of evidence that um, exercise intervention can greatly reduce uh, your susceptibility of that in the short and the long term. And I know you said about the that you've got some thoughts <clears throat> on some you know specifics in that. Is there? Because again, you sort of think about the mechanism of an injury of of ACL, and you think about that valgus potentially the position, and you think about the control of that, and so with with general exercise interventions that do reduce ACL do you do you have any inclination on the specific things in that program that would be doing that like is it is it that kind of working on your landing mechanics and things of that nature or is it more you know are you thinking more along the lines of strength or is it quite hard to to differentiate between the things that are actually making the difference if that makes sense yeah there's, there's probably a couple of parts that's so the number one is there's no one way eruption in your ACL and uh, you know it's always a combination of factors and loads and therefore there'll never be one solution to it and and your movement is always predicated by your genetics and, and your anatomy as well. So there's not how much valgus is too much valgus. I have no idea. And that's why valgus hasn't been shown to be predictive. That doesn't mean it's not important. Um, <clears throat> but if, if we come back to the, to the mechanism, like so the primary role of the ACL is to constrain anterior tibial translation. And secondly is internal tibial translation. And third is, is valgus, but as a secondary restraint to the MCL. And so, Whenever we have ground uh, reaction force, whenever we have impact, just purely on the anatomy of the knee, we're going to get an anterior tibial translation. And the larger the impact and the more posterior ground reaction force you have, will have a more aggressive anterior tibial translation. Uh, and if you've add valgus or rotation into that, then that's when you when you end up. So you, you rarely see uh, anyone rupture their ACL with their foot off the ground. You know, there is always that impact and shear independent of the valgus motion. Um, and so when... When someone ruptures their ACL, it's generally speaking in that first 40 milliseconds um, in ground contact. And that's that's not enough time to send a message down saying don't collapse. It's not even enough time for spinal reflex. So whatever level of, you know, there's lots of terms here, stiffness, co-contraction, pre-activation, whatever term you want to use to, to bucket that, whatever pretension I have before I hit the ground is probably going to go a long way towards determining you know, what happens when I do hit the ground along with the body position that I'm in. Um, and so I certainly feel that the plyometric exercises and exercises that work on early rate of force development and, and, and pre-tension or pre-activation, I feel that independent of your strength, that, that's a, just given the mechanism of injury alone, I feel that's incredibly important um, in terms of the timing of the injury and the activation around the knee joint, but also in terms of controlling that anterior tibial translation. So uh, we had some research published this year in, in male athletes, looking at those that went on to rupture their healthy limb post-surgery as opposed to their operated limb within two years. And the biggest biomechanical differences between the groups were in the drop jumps, double leg and single leg. And it wasn't even in symmetry. It was just purely on that previously healthy and now re-injured side. And it was all to do with plyometric ability. So uh, the shorter ground contact times, uh, sorry, longer ground contact times, more knee flexion, more ankle dorsiflexion, lower moments had a higher contralateral re-injury rate. And so again, not only is that pretension from being plyometric or reactive or whatever term you want to use important from the timeline point of view, but also that control of ankle dorsiflexion and knee flexion, that control of anterior tibial translation 
you know, when I'm doing my teaching or giving courses or whatever else, you know, this montage of ACL videos and that translation is always the first thing that happens. Sorry, that's not true. 85% of the time, that's what happens. And then there is a valgus or then there is a, you know, a secondary movement that comes with that, that ends up in, in rupture. And so, um, and again, that's predominantly in male athletes versus female athletes where maybe the frontal plane is a, is a greater primary loader of the ACL but it's always the combination of the two. Um, and so go back to your primary question was, you know, exercise wise, wise, what do I think is important? Well, obviously control of the frontal plane is important, but you can have very good frontal plane control and still rupture ACL. Um, I think that level of reactive strength and plyometric ability uh, is, is key to increasing your wiggle room. It still doesn't mean that you won't end up in trouble, but it certainly increases the wiggle room you have for the reasons outlined. And the second part then is in terms of, you know, what's most important, it depends on the athlete that's in front of you. So some people don't have the strength capacity to absorb and therefore it doesn't really matter. Some people have great frontal plane control, but, you know, just can't control that anterior tibial transition. And a lot of people are very explosive, but have really, really poor ankle stiffness. You know, you see it in rugby and, and, and elite football. You, know, it's, you see it in field athletes all the time. Great jumps. Uh, great explosiveness, but then you watch their ankle mechanics, and they're just they're just collapsing into tibial translation all the time. So, um, yeah, I, I feel clinically and based on you know pulling the research together, I feel if I could pick one exercise to prevent or reduce ACL injury, I think a plyometric exercise of some form, and again, not necessarily a plyometric as in slow landings, but it's something that's that's reactive and repeated bound. I think that would be my primary exercise, or my, if I only had to pick one, that would be it and then build the strength and, and everything else around that as well. Awesome. And then I suppose the next thing I wanted to go on to was kind of once once someone's had an ACL, so if they've had an ACL injury, what are the kind of key things from your perspective in terms of what do you need to initially, what are the things you need to do about it in terms of, you know, is it getting, getting that quiet knee? And I guess this might lead into a bit of a conversation around surgical versus non-surgical, but like that initial had the ACO injury, what's your kind of go-to in terms of these are the key things you need to work on? Yeah, I think the, 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 the first thing is really to, to, um, I've said it a few times is, is to begin with the end in mind. And so to maybe to outline to the athlete that, okay, you're going back to X or Y sport, whatever your chosen sport is, physically this is how i think you need to look to return to sport um and everyone can be stronger everyone can be faster so it's not like you can't develop further after that but this is you know the day before surgery the day after surgery i can write down on a piece of paper the tests i'm going to do and the values i think you should achieve with those tests because when you're able to outline that at the start it gives the athlete great confidence that they think you know what you're what you're doing um but also it gives me great structure because as you guys know, you get a great variety of, of reaction post ACL. Some people have, you know, incredibly angry knees. Some people have massive atrophy. Some people hit the ground running and have no problem and are really calmly and kick on. And so, you know, it's not that they all have to wait for the same timeline or progress on. It's that look at the end. This is what we want the end to look like. And every block of two weeks or four weeks, depending on the stage of rehab, where am I now? Where am I going? Where am I now? Where am I going? And I find that that allows me to make the least mistakes. It gives me the greatest continuity between my blocks. And it also gives the greatest consistency of, of rehabilitation that I'm not moving the goalposts all the time. And we know there's lots of psychosocial factors. So like the, the athlete needs you to be deadpan about what, what needs to be done, 
And if, if there's doubt or, or shift in what you're saying, that'll feed into maybe some of the anxiety around it. But also in terms of graduated exposure, well, I'm telling you now before surgery starts that this is what the end looks like. And so every step along the way, you've made all the markers. So it's very much, you know, self-efficacy is incredibly important in any injury, but in particular post-ACL and that I've ticked all the boxes. Well, then that's, you know, the next natural consequence is to move on to training or playing or whatever else. Um, so so, so I, I always feel strongly that there's huge inconsistency in that, in, in maybe how I do it among five ACLs or maybe how the three of us might do it with the same ACL in between us. And how much does that inconsistency then feed into inconsistency in outcomes? You know, I don't believe there's good or bad exercise. That You know, there's the end goal. And the fun part of our job is how many different ways can you find of getting there? Um, and, and everyone reacts and adapts differently to training stimulus and, and uh, et cetera. So having that clarity at the end. And then the next thing, as you say, is, right, what's the first thing I can do over these next two to three weeks? Um, and, and that's primarily... If we, if we look at what the problems are going to be at the end of rehab, one of the biggest problems is going to be muscle mass and strength, you know, regardless of what biomechanical analysis you do or whatever else, they, they struggle for mass and they struggle for, in particular, uh, quadriceps strength and, and sometimes in a range hamstring strength if you have a hamstring graft. And so if I'm starting at the beginning, it, the first thing I want to do is lose as little as possible. Um, and so that will be based primarily around, as we talked about before and before started the chat was you know the regaining of extension to allow our, especially our, our, our VMO to, to activate or, or, or get going and um, minimizing the effusion and being tremendously aggressive with our neuromuscular stimulation and, and normalizing our gait patterns um, and I feel we, 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 we probably muscle stim is, is, is underused and um, part of that's possibly cost and um, part of his lack of exposure but also we're probably not aggressive enough in, 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 you know, and how hard and how high we, we, we turn it on and push it on. And um, so my, 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 if my end is to have X amount of strength, my beginning is lose as little as possible. Um, and the best ways of doing that are get your knee nice and calm, regain your extension, and then get it firing as, as quickly as possible. And we know that atrophy will preference type two muscles. We know that in order to build type two muscle, um, we need to lift heavy things explosively, which in reality, we're not going to be doing in those first couple of weeks. So, the more we can use muscle stim to try and at least keep them fired up on some degree of stimulation, um, the easier it'll make life as we continue. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the um, what sorts of things you use and comp like complex or muscle stimulation was one of the things I wanted to talk about. We I was, used to work privately and we used Game Ready quite a lot because the guy mm. who ran the clinic was an ex Leicester Tigers head physio, so he was really into complex. He was really into um, Game Ready. Um, and I think that the, I've used game ready on my knee after I had a, I was saying to you earlier, I had an ACL. I actually also <clears throat> then tore my medial meniscus about two years later playing football on the same knee. So anyway, um, but, uh, use the game ready on that and use complex on that. And I found them incredibly helpful. Mm. Um, you know, you get that constant compression. I don't know whether the, with the game ready for me, I was thinking about it and thinking whether it's the actual compression that helps the swelling or whether it's the um, the the ice. I think for me, uh, my my thinking is that it's more the compression that actually is a helpful thing um, rather than it being cold. But obviously, it helps with a bit of pain relief, etc. But so with with your athletes, typically, will you use those sorts of things in that early phase with everyone, or will it again? Will it be much a, more of a case by case? Or yeah, it, it, it comes back to you know, the time you can commit and, and, and the level the athlete is, is working at. So certainly at elite level, I mean, those two things would be 
you know the bare minimum that that would be expected and would be, would be standard course. Um, if I had to pick one of the two, I would generally pick muscle stim because you can find other ways of getting around the game ready, even though it's a tremendous product and I would have no problem, you know, highly recommending it. And I've used it myself post ankle fracture. So um, I had no problem with that, but it, it's just difficult to get that level of recruitment on, on your own, uh, independent of muscle stim in those early phases. Um, but I, I think those two as, as a bare minimum would be, would be par for the course. And depending on availability and costs, obviously, you, you would recommend it to absolutely everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that's a, that's the benefit of getting hold of them pre-op as well, isn't it? Because you're you're setting the scene, you're letting them know how long the rehab's going to be, and then uh, most of the clients, even my recreational athletes, they're they're more than happy to buy a muscle stim unit because yeah. um, they're they're looking at the long the long haul, and you know you've laid up for those first few weeks. After my ACL, I, I was using that two three times a day. I, I feel like it really benefited me in the early stages. And I'm also using it more and more uh, whilst getting them to do their early exercises as well. So uh, in a much more active way, but you're just increasing the recruitment through, again, like week three, four as well. So, yeah, most most will uh, um, invest, I think, in that if they see they're going to get the use out of it two, three times a day. And then for, you know, one or two months after, that's my go-to now when my knee does, you know, if I do too many hills or, you know, I'm running a little bit too much, I, the first thing I do is whack the complex on. It seems to really help with the... Um, and it's a key point because like it, it can and should be used the whole way through rehab you know it it whether that's in the early phases to minimize atrophy as we've talked about whether that's in the middle phases where you want to kind of warm up the quads or, or get them activated prior to lifting when there's still that little bit of thing and then in the later on i mean certainly you know regaining muscle mass is a challenge but you know regaining the ability to recruit all the muscle that you have is a persistent challenge and it did very well into late rehab uh, certainly until you're doing um isolated and heavy and explosive quadriceps work um, and so having um having muscle stim involved at every level of rehab is is you know it, it's not something for two weeks and then it goes in the backpack as sometimes happens it's something that that should form a very very strong part of your rehab the whole way through yeah and, and you talked earlier about um the phases of rehab mm. and obviously you're looking at every athlete individually and there's not it's not going to be a case of okay after two weeks we do this and after three weeks we do this because of course everyone's going to be different and everyone's going to uh, progress at different rates but what what would you <clears> say are the main obviously you talked about you know re regain in the early phase <clears> getting you know, good extension, regaining a good gait pattern, a quiet knee where there's not as much swelling. So what would be, once you've achieved that, what would be your kind of key markers, as it were, through the phases of rehab where you would then be saying, okay, now we're ready to move on to this sec next phase? Or what would be your phases, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I, the way I try and approach it is, you know, what's my goal now and what's my next goal? And so everything I'm doing is all should always be working in parallel. So uh, in my first phase, you know, my goal is to calm my knee down, but I want to get strengthening. Okay. So as soon as I can, I'm trying to get squatting for range. I'm trying to get deadlifting for range. I'm trying to get moving and regain the movements that I want to load in a couple of weeks time. And I'm not doing them at any kind of intensity that'll get any kind of strength adaptation, but if I can't do them, I'm not going to be able to load them. So you're kind of protecting the knee, regaining the swelling, but at the same time, regaining your compound movements and, um, and then when I'm regaining my compound movements, I'm thinking, right, I want to develop strength. So I'm, that's the core focus of that, whether that's a, 
six, eight. Well, in reality, it's much longer than that. But the main theme of that block. Um, and then once I'm gaining strength, I want to gain isolated strength. So can I really go to town on my quadriceps and on my hamstrings? So you kind of have a four-week block of regaining strength work and then a four-week block of maintaining that and now starting adding my isolated work. And then your next thing is what you know, the first thing I want to know is when can I return to when can I run is the, is the next thing. So while I'm developing the isolated strength work, I am starting to do some hip lock drills. I'm starting to do low level ankling drills and pogo drills because what I want them to be able to do is I want them to be able to hop repeatedly on one leg before I go running. And if I can't do that either with good form or without pain, chances are when I go out, you know, plodding one leg after another, at worst I get a bit stiff and swollen. And That'll take money out of my strength bank. It'll take money out of my motor control bank. And I start rolling back down the hill. And then once you have regained your, your hip lock and your pogo and you start running for mechanics, then the next thing I'm thinking is, right, I want to start changing direction. And therefore, my ability to land and decelerate is going to be incredibly important like that. So obviously, if I'm running, I'm, I'm probably able to progress my eccentric way of force development work, my, my, my landing mechanics, the, my, the coordination, whether that's with sled work or whatever else, that I begin to trip and extend across different planes so that by the time my knee, you know, I, I'm executing those higher level tasks, I'm ready to change direction. And then the last bit, obviously, the sport specific stuff. So again, beginning to bring a ball or whatever else into rehab while I'm doing my change direction drills that I'm getting ready in preparation for not only change direction, but change direction in response to whatever sport-specific stimulus I'm going to have, whether that's tennis, whether that's football, rugby, et cetera. And so without being black and white about it, they're kind, you know, each of those things should be coming in parallel. And people will spend longer in different phases depending on life and work and time to commit to training and et cetera. But my key thing is, you know, how soon can I start strength training? Well, as soon as you can goblet squat to a bench and, and you know, deadlift to mid-shin, we're going to start loading that with a view to, 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 um, to strengthening, to, to you know, getting strength stimulus. Um, when can I start my isolated work? Well, as soon as I can do a single leg RDL to a T position, or I can do a single leg squat to the chair, well, then I'm probably going to be able to do much more heavy uh, isolated quad and hamstring work without fear of aggravating the knee or aggravating the hamstring. Whenever I can do single leg pogos and hip lock drills, there's a very good chance I'm going to be able to start my running volume without leading to either groin pain, Achilles pain, whatever else, but also not aggravating the knee. You're not going to rupture, well, touch wood. You're not going to rupture running a straight line. But the, the irony is that, you know, I mean, knee pain is a much bigger challenge than ACL. ACL re-injury is, is relatively low. In fact, you're, you're twice as likely to rupture the contralateral knee as you are the, the one that you've had operated on. So being able to tolerate load and the hills and, and everything else, like that's probably a bigger challenge in, in the longer term. And so making sure you have the mechanics in place and making sure you have the, the lower level load tolerance in place before you go back to running is, is a big bugbear because when people start running, even if they're not strong enough or, or they don't, it's very hard to get them to stop mentally and physically. And, you know, they're putting money into the bank in the gym. They're taking money out of the bank on the field when they're going for the runs. And then you wonder where you lose, you know, three months of, of roundabout anterior knee pain, up, down, yo-yo. And so having those criteria are really important. And then while that's going, been really aggressive in my deceleration mechanics so that, where that's landing on the spot with good form landing on the spot with you know with weight we, we often a lot of our landing drills tend to be motor control focused which is do them with your eyes closed do them with twists and it's not that they're not important but when you're running at you know 20k an hour and then you go to decelerate that's as much about capacity as it is about motor control um, and often 
if, you know, if number one, we have deficits in strength, number two is we definitely have deficits in our eccentric uh, rate of force development. Um, all, our, all our tests focus on how far I can jump, how high I can jump. But a lot of our deficits and ultimately the main mechanism of injury is in the ability to decelerate. Um, and then, you know, <clears throat> coupling with that, excuse me, and going back into our re-injury part, um, the plyometrics are generally the last piece to return to the highest level. But then ironically, probably from a re-injury point of view, I feel one of the most important parts from, from, from minimizing the risk of re-injury. So I think regardless of what exercise you're doing, you're thinking, where am I now? What's next? Where am I? And, and I'm bleeding in the, 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 the feeder exercises into what's next within each of those blocks. And at each time I'm saying at the end, all I care about is that you look like this and this exercise should be the next journey you step towards towards that outcome. Mm. And do you do you have specific with regards to strength? Because people talk a lot with ACLs about, OK, before you, you know, return to sport or before you return to plyometrics for example you might have you know people talk about <clears> certain <throat> body weight you know so can you leg press x amount times body weight or 1.5 times body weight or whatever it might be and everyone's got different markers that they use um are you are you a fan of using those sorts of markers do you use those sorts of things before you go on to like will, will you do a certain strength criteria before someone moves on to plyometrics or are you much more fluid from that point of view just before Ender answers that question, I want to take a quick moment to say thank you to the sponsors of the Physio Plus Fitness Podcast, Compex. So Compex is an electrical stimulation machine. We talk about it in today's episodes. It's fantastic for maintaining muscle mass, for building strength, for helping patients who are in positions where they maybe can't do some of the exercises that you would want them to do um, in order to really maximize the activation of certain muscle groups and really pinpoint certain muscle groups. can be used for pain control as well post-op. So fantastic tool. Highly recommend them for lots of different rehab conditions. There's a link in the show notes if you want to go and have a look at Compex machines. They really are much more affordable now than they've ever been. So go over and check those out. Um, and thank you to Compex for sponsoring the podcast. Also, if you guys are enjoying the audio content that we're bringing out, then check out our video content as well. That's over on the Physio Plus Fitness YouTube channel. Loads of amazing content over there. So go over there and check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes. And let's get back into the show. Yeah, I, I'm... The knee's the boss. So if the knee's happy at every stage of the way, I'm happy. If the knee's not happy, then you know there's no point in arguing with it because you're not you're not going to win that um, battle. Um, but technical competency is 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 huge in my rehab. And so um, there's a normal there's a lot of you need a certain amount of strength in order to be able to hop on one foot and hop repeatedly with good form. Um, but I can have lots of strength and still be shit at hopping on one foot and you know have anterior knee pain when I'm doing it. So. I think if you keep it competency based, you will need, you know, if you have enough strength or if you don't to do what you're looking to do. And so if I'm looking to do landing drills with good technical form, if I don't have the quadricep strength, I'm not going to be able to do it. And therefore it doesn't really matter what number I think I produce. But what is interesting though, is regardless of what criteria you pick, you have to know how every test has its flaws and how it has its gaps. And so a lot of the time, especially in, in, maybe clinical practice where you don't have the same level of equipment or technology to assess. A lot of the time compound movements are used as a surrogate for how limb strength is improving. So let's say that's a single leg squat repetition or a step up repetition or leg press. But very often your quadriceps deficits will hide or, or be masked in those compound movements or someone will come in and say, you know, I'm, 
I just, I've lots of knee pain. My knee pain swells after after running, but I'm, I'm front squatting one and a half times body weight. Yeah, but how are you doing it, and 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 where you know where are those deficits being being hid? So I think you go to watch them hopping, and they can't hop on one foot, and then they wonder why they're getting knee pain when they go back into the running. So I think to answer your question, there, there's no good or bad tests. I think um, knowing the the limitations of some of your tests. Uh, is incredibly important. And I, I, I have big reservations about a lot of those compound movements as measures of strength, because if I could pick one measure of strength, it would be an open chain quadriceps assessment of, of whatever mechanism that you have available to you. And same for the hamstring, because if you're strong at them or, or good at them, whatever the hell good is, you, your knee will, 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 will be able to put up with a lot, whereas you can have very good compound strength and still have quite obvious isolated quadriceps deficits and your running strategy, it'll be a more extended knee, it'll be braced, your joint impact reaction force will be higher and, and you get sore and sore the next morning. So, <clears throat> I, you know, we have some research there at the minute showing that about 30% of your single leg drop jump performance is predicted by your quadriceps strength or your quadriceps symmetry. So I think if you're using technical competency to, to guide your progressions, I think a lot of the time that'll you, you'll find out quite quickly if, if your, your your strength levels are good enough or not. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point for me. I mean, I'm uh, again going back to after I injured my leg, I was trawling through the literature and listening to no end of podcasts. And uh, I must say, uh, I listened to your podcast with um, David Pope. Yeah, um, I, I took a lot out of that, and I was kind of structuring my rehab, and it's such a I say to people now, if you if you can rehab an ACL well, it gives you the foundations to rehab any almost any lower limb injury because there's all the phases you have to go through with the strength and the plyometrics, the coordination and biomechanical analysis and stuff. And I think a lot of the time people might fall down because they might not have enough time to spend that time. You know, if you work for the NHS, you might not get the nine months that you know before they return to play. And also, you might get too rigid in those phases. You know, so. Um, that for a lot of athletes, particularly if they didn't strength train before their injury, it might take them six months to hit strength markers that you you set. Um, so then if you're waiting until six, seven months before you're adding in any plyos, you're expecting them to return to the sport at nine, potentially. It's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? So um, that that podcast really opened my eyes on my own rehab. And I, I started using plyos in the swimming pool a lot earlier mm. on. Um, using sort of modified plyometrics a lot earlier on. And um, and I think the key point, you said it a couple of times, is it's all running in parallel. You know, the the you, you've got feeder exercises and feeder movements that are laying the, the tracks for you to then bring in more complex plyometric movements later on. And yeah, the big one for me, I mean, I don't have access to some of the, the kit that you must have over in Dublin, but just looking at them and doing those initial plyometrics, sometimes they're doing them but they're slapping the floor. They're making tons of noise. They're, you know, they're doing them, but you know, the quality's not there. So um, one thing I love is skipping, you know, bring, cause the, the rope doesn't lie. Does it? If they're not, if they're not reducing that contact time, they're not going to clear the rope. So um, yeah, I think if you little tools like that are quite useful, even if you haven't got the force plates and stuff to, to measure with. And, and uh, going back to, you know, when you're talking about the tests, you know, often we can be, you know, excessively criteria driven um, to the detriment of the athlete, partly because of stuff we should be introducing that we haven't introduced yet. And partly we just don't stand back and watch them. 
And as you say, you know, we're given the exercise, it's time to do this now, do X number of sets, X number of reps. And, you know, how, how often are we actually looking at the technical quality of, of what they're doing? Um, I'm not saying we don't do it, but we, we may not, we don't put as much time into that as we do into selecting the exercise and writing down the number of sets and reps, when actually the way I do it is probably the most important thing, independent of the exercise I select. And an and exercise like that, like, like the skip and rope, like where it's an automatic pass fail. There's no, there's no coaching. In it. There's, the best drills are the drills where you have to say nothing. You know, the, you know the, the exercise in and of itself, whether that's from a motor learning point of view or just from a technical competency point of view, it, they, they auto-organize. And that's, I mean, that's gold us for us, especially in an outpatient setting where in the reality, you know, it's grand when I have five or six hours a day with an athlete and you can keep your foot on their throat the whole way time. You know, you, you, you're ultimately the profit in, in our outpatient department is based on what the progress they'll make between sessions. And so I can have unbelievable periodization skills and knowledge and whatever else. But if I'm squatting in a way that that's hiding my quadriceps deficit, or if I'm doing pogos and I'm not, you know, isolating my ankle stiffness, there's going to be a ceiling to the adaptation you get within, within each training block and the progress you're able to make. And I think that's where um, I certainly, uh, well, I, I did a, uh, personal training qualification actually after i did my physio so most i think a lot of people don't really do that they do the other way so they do pt first or they do personal training and then they go into physio because they're intrigued by rehab but i kind of did the opposite and i felt like it gave me a really good um foundation of just coaching coaching movements coaching strengths strength activities what to look for knowing just looking at a movement and and really kind of getting an understanding of that that coaching element which is huge isn't it because like you said it is not it's not even just about seeing discrepancies or seeing things or movement patterns you might want to change it's also knowing how to coach that person to actually do that because it's all well and good saying to someone oh can you just squat like this or can you do this but lots of times people don't have that motor understanding there mm. you know you get the classic um I'm not going to call them motor morons, but you get those people that don't have that. I mean, obviously a lot of athletes are not going to be like that, but especially in the recreational population, you're going to have people that don't have great motor control. Um, and it's then just coaching them on how to do those movements in ways that isn't overly complicated, you know, using lots of external cueing and things of that nature can often be much easier than internal type cues that you give to people. So I think that is massive. And I think the other thing I think I wanted to pick up on a point that you made there and about, um, which I think is so important that we get so obsessed, I think, sometimes with compound movements and that actually isolated movements are often really necessary and really important. And I think, you know, you only have to look at hamstring rehab where you go, well, one of the well-known and I know everyone knows about Nordics, but one of the exercises that really helps hamstrings is Nordics because it's isolating that hamstring in a way that really puts it under a lot of eccentric load. And I think that's probably why it helps just because it's a hard exercise and it's isolating or really getting the hamstrings working. Um, whereas, you know, we typically would go for the single leg bridges and the kind of, you know, the more classic, maybe concentric stuff going on. So I think um, you, I don't think we can underestimate sometimes how much being isolating and a muscle group is fine to do and actually really necessary a lot of the time. Um, you don't have to be doing compound or quote unquote functional movements all the time usually it's going to be a combination of both of those things. And like you said, it's all about the athlete and knowing what movements they need to do for their sport, but also what discrepancies they might have. Um, so yeah, I love that. I think it's, it's such an important point um, with that. Um, and you mentioned earlier as well about the psychosocial factors with, with ACLs. And I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that. Cause obviously 
getting back from ACL. I know Glenn, I don't know how Glenn felt getting back into sport, but I, I was there. I was bricking it when I first got back into um, high level hockey and thinking what, you know, because I was out, as I was saying before, I was out for almost two years. I played high level hockey and, you know, you get back and you're trying to, you know, cement your place back in the first team. You're trying to get back into the squad, etc. There's all these kind of pressures, which again, I'm sure the athletes you deal with are a lot higher level than, than I was as well. And so it's, it's all those things that I think are obviously hugely important. So do you, you know, do you have a, a sort of go to psychological screen? Is it very much just talking to athletes? Like how do you sort of <clears throat> build that in, if that makes sense into your rehab? Yeah. It, again, you know, the, the two biggest reasons for not returning to play or delayed return to play are knee pain and fear of re-injury. And both of them are my fault. Uh, and so they're, they're my fault because I didn't begin with the end in mind. So if I begin with the end in mind and I map out what I want the end to look like and where you are now and the steps through, two things will happen. A, I should have a very comprehensive rehabilitation program. Therefore, your knee shouldn't get sore. If I do, it'll be very transient as we progress along. So knee pain is my fault and therefore you know it's either because i have missed something in my rehabilitation program or i've been aggressive or or, or, or overly unsystematic in my approach and the second thing is fear of re-injury fear of re-injury you know in terms of your psychosocial the the big two big things in in the the mental aspect of it are self-efficacy and goal setting and so you know, so the ability to understand that I can achieve something. Well, if I take you from the day you're on crutches and I talk you through every step of the journey back to return to play, and then every step along it, I keep on showing you how you're going along the right direction. When you get to the top, you'll think, well, I, I'm pretty much where I'm supposed to be. Like, what, what else am I supposed to do? Where the concern comes from is, am I ready or not? Have I done enough? But also not having the graduated exposure, you know, the, not having that the... The, the, the rehabilitation to bridge between the gym and the field and and you know much of our focus is and and rightly so is based on strength and power and often don't do that sufficiently um, but you need to be under mechanics either specific to the conditioning demands of the sport or the reaction components of the sport and obviously in an outpatient setting in particular there'll be a very low glass ceiling to what we can do in relation to that. But we need to bridge it somehow. Um, and so if if I show you all the steps and you you, you go through all that, you'll see your self-efficacy will be, will be achieved, but also your goal setting with it. I'm here now. And then return to play is just almost the most logical next step to do. And some people have a natural apprehension. It's about everything. It's about COVID. It's about going to the doctor. It's about you know everything. That's fine. And that's their predisposition. That won't change. But the more that we can use our emotional intelligence and use those skills around uh, goal setting and you know landmark and showing them how they, they've achieved everything they need to achieve, the much less likely they are to delay return because they think, well, look, at it's time. Like, what, what am I waiting for? It's, it's, the, it's the logical time to go. And the less likely I am to have a huge amount of knee irritation or aggravation along the way. So I think... Like all, we know the we know our patients are to blame for everything, but in reality, it, it usually comes back to it, it goes back to that's the reason I put such a huge emphasis in the beginning before I start is the roadmap, and it, you know your roadmap and my roadmap don't have to be the same because who's to say that I know what I'm talking about? But have I a roadmap? 
And am I taking that athlete along and when they're finished it, can I go back and redraw it and say, look, at I, I do this a bit differently. I do that. And I'm going to apply those principles to the next one. But how can I reflect on my practice when I don't know what my practice is? And how can I, um, how can I reflect in my rehab and say they, they failed rehab or they didn't fail if I don't know if I did what I set out to achieve? Um, and so I think regardless of what technology you have or expertise you have, writing down what you believe the end looks like today and working towards that, it will give more successful rehab, but also it's incredibly developmental for us as clinicians to, to, to have something to reflect back on it. Did I achieve what, what I hope to achieve? Mm. You can also use that system as a filter with clients. If you've seen them, if they're making their mind up, whether they should or shouldn't have the surgery. Right. So it's like, um, if, if someone's a Sunday league footballer and they work, you know, f- multiple overtime hours, manual, you know, um, self-employed, uh, never go to the gym and you're saying, look, I need, you know, six months of you to, to nine months, three, four times in the gym. We're going to work through this. We're going to work through that. And that will get you a, your potentially a good outcome. And if you don't put that time in, you won't. Again, to still align from your uh, um, David Pope podcast, like is the juice worth the squeeze, right? So mm. if they're sort of working out whether they should or shouldn't, and maybe they're coming to the end of their career, it might help sway in one way or the other, you know? And if you've got an athlete that, well, I train five times a week in the gym anyway. This is my main stress release. This is my, you know, massive part of my life. They're going to veer towards that kind of route. And if someone's more like, well, actually, I hate the gym. I'm, I'm not really um, into that. I, I can't be bothered to put that kind of time and effort in. I thought he was just going to repair it and that was it. Jobs are good. And then it kind of filters out those kind of clients as well, right? So then by the nature of that, you'll have a, a better selection of clients that are more likely to do well. Yeah, and, and I think also, it's not that you have to train four times a week to have a successful outcome, but if I train twice a week, it's going to take longer, you know, and, and, and having that. So, like, what can you commit to this? Like, if someone wants to have the race, and even for going back to five-a-side soccer or something that is, you know, maybe it's nearly more dangerous than, than most sports, but, um, you know, wh- why not do that? But just understand that if you can go to the gym once a week and do some stuff at home once a week, um we will still get there. You know, it's like, it's like MacGyver. You should be able to rehab an ACL with a rubber band and a box of matches, but um, it's just going to take longer and your progression will be slower. And and that's fine. There's nothing to say that you have to get back at the same time as Virgil van Dijk or, or whatever else. But you have to appreciate that he has probably one of the best medical teams uh, in the country at his disposal. He can train X hours a day. He's all the facilities in the world. And, you know, you're going to your local gym twice a week and you're stuck with me. You know, so it's 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 it, even whatever the the up non up. It's well, what can you commit to? Okay, well, this is what's achievable, regardless of whether it's up or non up. Um, and again, it goes back into that goal setting and understanding and fear. And that if you can outline that as early as possible, and especially in pre op, as, as you said earlier, Chris, um, people, it's all about expectation management, like like almost anything else. And so if you can if you can manage those expectations, set the landmarks, then they might say, well, look, 12 months is fine by me. I, you know, I didn't think I was going to get back at all. And so I'm happy with that. And I, I can commit to that. And you just tell me what to do and crack on. Another interesting um, opinion that I, I hear from them as well is, well, I'm only, I only play Sunday league as if that sort of, you know, they're still doing a, a high risk rotational sport, right? So they still have to. Um, rehab appropriately so that you know oh, I'm not playing for Chelsea I just want to play for my pub team but yeah you're still running stopping starting twisting pivoting so it, it you know if you're going to play that sport in particular 
rugby, football, those kind of higher risk sports for ACLs like that, it, then it's interesting that mindset that they don't necessarily give it the um, attention that it deserves for the for the force that they're putting through their knee. Completely. And, and that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stopped playing competitively. I'm just going to play tag. I'm just going to play five a side. I think it, most most of the outpatient business comes from tag and comes and comes from five side. So like it's it's uh, yeah, there, there's a uh, there's a disconnect in, in in understanding there. And what about um, you mentioned uh, sort of re re injury and and obviously of the other limb. So what what are the kind of stats with that in terms of you know how often do people re injure? What's the biggest re injury that people have after ACLs? Yeah. So. Um, we published last year the, the two-year follow-up. We're just finishing the, the five-year follow-up this year, but published the, the two-year follow-up uh, on the cohort in Dublin. And um, the re-injury rate is about, uh, i get this right now, 4% for your operated side and um, twice that, 8% for your contralateral side. Um, and you are... At least in our studies, you're, you're seven times more likely to rupture with a hamstring graft than you are a patellar tendon graft. Um, and there is no time-relatedness to re-injury. Um, so after six months, it doesn't matter you're six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to 24. There, there's no relationship between the time when you return to play and your second ACL injury, whether that's Ipsy or whether that's Contra. Um, so again, the, the re-injury rates, particularly in the patellar tendon, patellar tendon re-injury rates are about 2%. So like those suffering with, with knee pain and swelling are a far larger, and those that are not getting back to the same level of function, they're a far larger cohort than the re-injury rate. And as I said, you're far more likely to rupture the healthy limb than you are the, uh, the operated limb. Um, but there's obviously a huge emotional and physical trauma at the time of injury. There's a huge cost, uh, financial and time and effort-wise to getting back. So, you know, People looking to avoid that is, is completely understandable, but um, the, and the risk factors for second injury are, are primarily around participation. So if you go back to demanding sports, you're more likely than if you don't go back to demanding sports. If you're younger, but if you're younger, you're more likely to go back to demanding sports than if you don't go back to demanding sports. And if you had a non-contact, non-contact injury to start off with, um, so if you, if you took a speed wobble, pivoting, standing on your own, uh, your chance of, of, especially of contralateral injury, it's one of the one of the higher risk factors uh, for, for for subsequent injury as well. So, again, whether we're <clears throat> when we're profiling our athletes, if you would set the bar a little bit higher, especially in terms of those plyometric measures uh, and, and frontal plane mechanics during landing and change direction in those that had an initial non-contact, um, I could probably see some, some good value and sensibility in that. What's the reason? Do you, what's your um, gut feel on why the hamstring seems to be more? Injury prone, hamstring graft seems to be more injury prone than the patellar tendon. Is it just the bone, the bone grafting, or what's the what's your thinking there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know is the honest answer, um, and probably some of our surgical colleagues would be better placed. I think I, I was at a conference, a pre-COVID conference, with Donald Shelburne uh, was presenting at it, um, and I mean, such such a body of work, you know, just to complete is quite and so patellar tendon graft was the primary graft of choice for ACL reconstruction for a long time and then it changed to hamstring graft primarily because of the comorbidity of anterior knee pain um, but as I said earlier my feeling is knee pain is, is my fault that's my problem it's not, it's not the surgeon's problem 
the surgeon is reconstructing the knee if they if they go for surgery and don't go with conservative, primarily to provide the structural stability and minimize the risk of re-injury. And so whatever graft does that should be the primary graft of choice. And every graft will have comorbidities and weaknesses associated. And that's my problem. And I have to clean that up and I have to make the mess of it. But I can only make the best of the quality of the graft that's gone in. So um, I think some of the shift away from patellar tendon, even though the outcomes were very good, were around anterior knee pain. And I feel that's a, that's a rehab problem. That's not a, a surgical problem. Um, whether that's because there are certain studies showing that remodeling of a hamstring graft is, is, takes longer than remodeling of a patellar tendon graft, or whether that's a big, chunky patellar tendon graft just is more stable than you know, a four-strand uh, gracilis and semi-10, I would only be um, you know, speculating. But if I, if I did mine in the morning, it would be, or if my, if my children did in the morning, well, they're too young to have one yet, but uh, a patellar tendon graft would be, would be certainly my, my, my primary choice. And um, is it right that the patellar tendons get generally uh, are quicker in terms of return to play than the hamstrings? Um, or not really? certainly, I, I, a, I can't say. I, clinically, I've noticed the difference one side compared to the other. Um, anterior knee pain would tend to be a little bit more persistent in patellar tendon than hamstring. Um, our surgeons would generally suggest that a hamstring should return later than a patellar tendon for those remodeling purposes that I talked about earlier. Um, and because the, the re-injury risk that is that a little bit higher, but, um, I don't know of any particular reason why a patellar tendon, I suppose for me, return to play is based on physical competency. And so when you have a quad a patellar tendon or a quad receptor tendon for that matter, you'll have certain deficits that you won't have when you have a hamstring tendon and vice versa. And so ultimately it's my job to fill in the gaps as quickly as possible based on what the athlete can, can, can commit to. Um, and so, you know, the beginning with the end in mind, the end should look the same regardless of whether it's a hamstring graft or patellar tendon graft because ultimately you're trying to pass the same test regardless. Yeah. And I think I wanted to ask about your the, the research and the PhD as well in terms of what things, or not necessarily even just the PhD, but like over the last few years, what are the things that you think now, looking back, that you think you've really, like big things that you've learned about ACL rehab and things where you think, okay, I've really changed my practice there or there are things that I really like you know, these are massive things I didn't used to do, but I do now sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've often said it before, one of the great benefits, if you want to call it the benefit of having a biomechanics lab, is that your work is constantly under scrutiny. And so, uh, you know, if the biggest thing I, I've learned from having biomechanics is it doesn't matter what you do, it only matters what you change. And so fundamentally, paper, you know, program can look brilliant on paper, you know, the technique of the squat can look fantastic. But if I'm not... Amalgamating that exercise selection with training intensity with periodization, I'm, I'm not going to get the, the, the adaptation I'm looking for. Um, the second thing would be that um, I, I probably didn't put as much emphasis on reactive strength and plyometric ability early enough and then consistently long enough and set a high enough bar in, in my early ACLs. So like everyone did quad work, everyone did landing work, that's grand. But your, your reactive strength and your springiness for various reasons, and also because it's the most demanding nervous system is always the last piece of the jigsaw to return, both in terms of symmetry and absolute values. Um, and I probably didn't begin that journey early enough in rehab and then bring it to a far enough destination. Um, so I, I, as a simple example, like all your field athletes 
should be able to do single leg tuck jumps. But like you ask most to do it and they, and they won't be within within an ass's roar. And that there's lots of people who have no ACL injury that, that can't do a single leg tuck jump. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to do it. Uh, and and that if they could do it, it wouldn't influence the re-injury risk. Um, and I, I certainly have put a much bigger focus on transitioning from developing physical quantities into changing motor patterns, whether that's in acceleration, sprint, change direction, and then obviously how that feeds into sport-specific movements in that, you know, if you don't have the base physical qualities, you know, there's only so much you can do with, with someone's change direction pattern running, but just because you've re- regained those p- mechanics doesn't mean that they're not going to retain some of the patterns that that left them susceptible to ACL injury in the first place or, you know, end up in subsequent hamstring injury, groin pain, anterior knee pain, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so um, I, I I think they're probably the, the, the three big bits in that, you know, it's all well and good doing programs, but ultimately what am I changing? Um, again, it's not that frontal pain isn't, isn't important. It's just it, it and quadriceps strength have retained their importance, but certainly, you know, reactive strength and plyometric ability and ankle stiffness in particular um, is front and center from the get-go. And then transitioning those physical qualities or in, in parallel as we talked about into running mechanics and change direction mechanics and then because a lot of the time when you hear about sport specific drills it'll be i'll run around cones and i'll tap the ball and I do x y and z but the drills are too open so you, you'll execute the drill which is to move the ball around the cone but it, it, it there's no feedback loop as to the, the the way that your body is organizing itself in order to do that and so I've put a much bigger focus both in my learning and practice and teaching around motor learning. You know, how can you create an environment? A good phrase, you know, as, as, a, as someone in Rebuild, you're a coach, you're a gardener, you know, so you're just trying to, to pluck the weeds, water them a little bit, give them in the environment where they can grow and adapt and change all the time. And as you talked about the queuing, the language you use and the exercise you select and the way you progress them is all incredibly important to that. But if you're not measuring it, and it's not changing, it doesn't matter what you're doing in between. I'd like to um, just ask a bit more specifically there, Ender. I mean, you, you mentioned a few key points about, um, you know, specific drills, sport-specific drills, acceleration, deceleration, change of direction. Um, again, I think these are, these are missing a lot of the time in that end stage in a lot of people's rehab journeys. But, you know, using things like the T-drills and the ladder drills and round the cones and stuff like that, do you, what's your opinion on, um, can you accurately kind of film that with basic equipment, you know, like a huddle on an iPad, yep. for example, or do you really need the, you know, the high tech stuff in the, in the biomechanics lab to get a, a good, a good view of that and a good way of analyzing the change of direction, the, um, movement patterns, for example. Yeah. So any measurement is better than no measurement, you know, so I did do everything for my own learning, for patient education um, there, there's and there's a low ceiling maybe to how accurate that can be for quantifying things and quantifying change but picking off the big fish it, you know it's, it's there to be seen and, and we're using it in coaching every day so I mean what's the difference in using it in assessment as part of coaching so I would video everything I would encourage everyone to video everything as much for your own catalogue of learning and go back in comparison as anything else um, in terms of quantifying, you, you probably need something more robust and, and you need you need kinetic and kinematic. Me- you don't need. If you don't have kinetic and kinetic, kinematic measures, you, you miss stuff. 
Um, and you'll see that in the lab all the time where you're doing change direction or jump tests and you're looking at the knee flexion angles or the ankle ankles and, and they look the same, but the angle is only any good as to where the ground reaction force is in relation to that joint. And then you go back and look at the moments across the joint, you'll see you know, much lower knee extension moments, much lower um, ankle plantar flexion moments as they compensate or as they offload that side. Um, and similarly, I, I had a guy today uh, we were doing drop jump analysis and RSI numbers, fantastic, lobby short ground contact times. But then when you looked at the force traces, you could see where his heel was smacking the ground. You could see how he was inefficient. And then when you layered the kinematics on top of that, you could see where along the chain he was he was leaking specifically. So doing more plyometric work in and of itself may not have been what he needed because he had isolated quality deficits and therefore he was always going to choose that strategy until those gaps were filled. Um, so as a long-winded way of saying, um, you, you see the most when, when, when you have the most comprehensive analysis and it allows you to be targeted and allows you not to miss stuff. A bit like the, the compound strength assessment versus the isolated quads assessment. You know, the, the, the more accurate you can be, the more you learn and the more you highlight. But you can video everything and you can, and you can learn from what you see and you can pick off the big stuff. And so much of it isn't even in relation to the knee so much of it's in relation to the foot position, especially that externally rotated foot and how early in range that'll let you hit your MCL and, and, and cause issue. And in particularly in change direction, that ipsilateral trunk rotation and side flexion um, as a compensation very commonly for lack of reactive strength or lateral hip strength. But, you know, when you're doing your change direction and going around your cones and your ladders, you see this big, obviously there's a podcast and no one can see me, but you see this big sway and rotation and, they're getting faster at the drill. They're scoring more goals. They're evading their attacker. But the bloody deficit is still sitting there and it's sitting there until it goes on to cause a, a, you know, a re-injury or they meet someone who can match them and just their inefficiencies are, are, are there to be seen. So I think that end stage in particular, in parallel again, having your constraint drills that are really trying to, to optimize your mechanics for pivoting, sidestepping, running. And then in parallel challenging those mechanics in a more chaotic environment with more sports-specific stimulus, I think you need a parallel track in that, whereas very often we're strong, we're hopping and landing, and then we're back out playing drills and my knee feels good, but actually those asymmetries or those inefficiencies will remain and, and, and potentially end up in, in soft tissue injury, never mind you know, being a reduction in, in athletic performance. So taking that... Um that same example you've got a, a guy change of direction he's got the pronounced ipsilateral um trunk sway maybe he's been doing that his whole athletic career pre-injury post-injury um he may have had some deficit in his trunk muscles for example is uh, and you've addressed those and he's still doing that because it's a you know a, a motor pattern that he's just got ingrained how easy is it or how difficult is it to uh, this is certainly the bit that I struggle with the most at that particular point with these, uh, you know, footballers on field players. Like how, uh, what kind of cues are you using to correct that? And are they watching themselves back on the screen? Are you filming them? Are you like, how much feedback are you giving them and what kind of cues and drills are you using with those particular individuals? Yeah, it, it, it comes back to a couple of things. So, if, if you think of, of you know Newell's triangle about you know what influences you know, motor patterning, there's there's the task, there's the environment, and there's the individual. And so, 
they're in, you know, going back to, so why might it be difficult to change? It might be difficult to change if I don't have the physical capacity. So, you know, if I, if I, if I have a deficit in strength, if I have a deficit in knee-centrigrated force development, I can cue the shit out of them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to, you know, they have the capacity to do anything differently. But working off the assumption then that they have the capacity or they have the, the, the building blocks, the next thing then is, is the task and how can I manipulate the task to make them choose a different strategy? Um, and so it, 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 change direction is a skill. And so like any skill, how I practice it will influence how quickly I improve on it and how well I'm coached or the environment I put in. And so the, 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 the analogy I often use is I, I play a little bit of golf very badly, but I enjoy playing badly because it, it clears the head. Um, so I can go on a driving range, I can hit 50 golf balls and I'm never any better afterwards because I hit them like I hit them the last and I hit them like I hit them before because I'm not practicing. I'm just, I'm, I'm letting the aggression out. So I can change direction a lot of time and never change anything because the task hasn't been manipulated to try and make me answer the question differently. differently. So let's say an example of, of that guy who, who has the trunk rotation. Well, I might get him to do a number of drills holding a stick over his head with his elbows locked and just keep the stick overhead. So I'm not going to tell him don't rotate because that's not how we learn to move. I'm going to give him a problem to solve. And so immediately when he holds the stick overhead, he won't do that rotation, but he'd probably be much slower on the, on the, on the cut and he'd probably be much longer ground contact time. So then all I have to do is coach intensity or if he's trunk swaying, well, I might use a, a bungee or a band to exaggerate the sway. And so rather than saying, don't sway, I'm going to pull him down and you think, well, actually, the more I sway, the more likely I'm going to fall over. So now I'm just going to have to self-organize and come up with a different strategy to do. And so the guys that I have struggled with in changing, so some people are, are naturally very plastic and some people are less. That, that's no problem. No, I will always be a difficult golfer to coach. That, that's the reality of it. But number one is, do they have the base physical competency? And they don't need to be, you know, Schwarzenegger, but, you know, enough competency to get by. And irrespective of that, the ones where I've struggled with is because I have, haven't been a good gardener. I, I haven't put them in an environment and given them a drill. The best drills are the drills where you say nothing. If, if I have to tell them, if I have to mention a body part or tell them what to do, it's a poor drill. And it's, it's phenomenally challenging to say, I, we have this every now and again, the clinic where I'm going to coach in silence. And that is not, coaching in silence is not the way forward. We need to give context, you need to motivate. But just, A, because it makes me watch and shut up and just see what's happening and what I'm doing is having an influence. But also B, it makes me think, what's the one way I could manipulate this exercise to change that? And, you know, time is a great constraint. So when you, when you create urgency, when you create demand, ground contact times change, you know, how quickly the coordinate has to change. If I give you a water bag or I give you some degree of perturbation, A, it'll change my strategy. A, it'll create, B, it'll, it'll create some, you know, variability, but still with a degree of repetition and consistency of what I'm doing. You know, I'm going to get greater carryover and greater learning from it. Um, and then C is, is the progression that, you know, one band becomes two, speed, intensity, you know, there's lots of ways of manipulating and doing it. So to answer your question, you know, the best coaches of any skill get the job done and they get the job done, A, by being able to just look and see what needs to be done. And then B, by picking the one or two little attributes, thinking, I'm going to just tweak this drill. It's like the, you know, the golfer, you know, you put the golf behind your, you know, tee behind your ear and next thing you're, you're hitting it down. The, you know, it's, it's the way to be able to, manipulate the task 
to just make you choose a different environment. And then you come into your, 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 your rules about practice, about how you practice in series or in order or, or with chaos and random. So I think that knowledge of, of how people learn to move, the knowledge of the task, obviously, and how to manipulate the task, but then fundamentally putting people in an environment where they learn and being able to manipulate that environment so that they learn progressively. Um, that's ultimately, it, obviously, very challenging, especially if you don't necessarily have the time to do it or the exposure in it. But for my, like, it's, it's fascinating stuff and certainly some of the most interesting and, and, and enjoyable work to do. Amazing. I had a question in about, um, you mentioned ankle stiffness a few times. And so people talk about dorsiflexion and how important dorsiflexion is of the ankle with, with relationship to the knee. And we know that obviously having adequate dorsiflexion for the squatting and for overhead squatting and for all those sorts of movements is important. So how, how much, or do you have a, a value of how much is too much in terms of dorsiflexion and, and sort of, do you have values that you, that you look at in terms of like knee to wall tests, et cetera, or what are your sort of, you know, how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really good question because whenever you know, we're talking about it in clinic or, or in courses, you know, the first question is how much dorsiflexion do you need? And, you know, it, it, it goes back to, well, it depends on the task. And so like my passive range tells me nothing about how I control the task. So actually I would very rarely measure passive range uh, only to see, have I enough to do most tasks that I'm looking for? Um, and so let's say post ACL, I mean, the, the most dorsiflexion you need is probably going to be in um, an aggressive change direction. Um, but even then your, your knee is not going to, you know, at least hopefully transition too far in front of your, 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 your toes when you're doing that. Um, whether it does or not is irrelevant, but it, it doesn't need to, to be able to execute the task as, as efficiently as possible. And in fact, the more it does so, the more anterior knee pain you're probably going to get and more anterior tibial translation. So um, to answer your question, how much you need is dependent on the task and it's dependent on my control of dorsiflexion. So for example, um, you like for me for the most part dorsiflexion is excessive you'll see people in mid stance and running especially field athletes you know they, they'll run in a very flex pattern as their heel comes past their, their backside it stays very much stuck to the ground and therefore they have poor swing leg recovery and there's a whole host of other cascading events that happen because of that and a lot of that is just a lack of of, of, of that plyometric ability but st stiffness specific to the ankle same with change direction they, they go to change direction, they pivot, and you see this big forward shunt of the tibia, uh, uncontrolled dorsiflexion and knee flexion, high anterior tibial translation, plus or minus ACL load, plus or minus patellar tendon load and patellar femoral load. And so I would see far more uncontrolled dorsiflexion than I would see uh, re restricted dorsiflexion. And I, there are very, 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 very few athletes that I've seen that do even, you know, pose quite complicated ankle fracture that don't have enough dorsiflexion to do everything that they need to do and so a lot of times you see people in gyms and they're squatting with stuff on their heels that's to compensate for their lack of coordination in, in flexing at the hip knee and ankle together and so they put something on their heel it creates more of a knee dominance they can compensate for their lack of hip control and away we go but they're often training in heels or training in boots and then or sorry training in in uh, runners and then playing football in, in boots, which is probably the the, the, the most heel negative uh, environment that you can that you can find yourself in. So, um, I, I don't know what you guys find, but certainly I would say uncontrolled dorsiflexion is much 
contributes much more to, to business than, than 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 an absence of dorsal flexion. Yeah, and a lot. Go on, sorry, mate. Yeah, I was thinking if you're if you're looking to increase the stiffness around the ankle, then um, strength training and hop training is the the way to go about that. And a lot of clients will miss extensive plyometric training. And how often do you ever give like proper calf strengthening in a program generically? You know, I, I, I'm a big believer in in calf strengthening as part of their ACL or, you know, a lot of my lower limb rehab programs anyway. But it's often gets missed, doesn't it? So people squat, they lunge, they deadlift, but they're not doing like significantly loaded calf raises. And a lot of the time plyometrics is, is missed or rushed at the end. So if they have that lack of control in the ankle, um, the way to address that is to try and stiffen the ankle up with plyometrics and strength training, which I think is um, a, a big grey area in a lot of the clients' ICs rehab up to that point. You know, completely yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think a lot of athletes as well. When it comes back to dorsiflexion, a lot of athletes and people, even recreational people, uh, recreational athletes will go to the gym and they'll do recreational sports and they'll do other things and so a lot of them do have reasonable dorsiflexion because they already squat they already do activities that require that so like you say they've actually they've gained that mobility just through dynamic movements they've just done it through repetitive squatting lunging deadlifting etc um you know not everyone obviously recreationally will do gym stuff as well but a lot of people do so they've they've got a reasonable you know um range so yeah i agree it's not you don't generally tend to see a lot of people that really really lack that unless you get obviously like you know people that have had previous ankle sprains if they haven't rehabbed it they they tend to be the people that i find do have a restriction in one side when they've had a previous injury they haven't really rehabbed it and then they come in and they've maybe got a knee issue or something like that and then you test their knee to wall and it's massively different on that side and they say, oh, yeah, I was, you know, I did sprain that a couple of years ago and never really did anything about it. It just got better and it was fine. And then you realize actually it's a bit different. But but yeah, generally, I find it, it's not too bad. Um, so, yeah, I thought last thing, if that's OK, just to maybe chat briefly about um, research. And, and is there any, you know, is there any research that you're involved in Ender or that you know is out there or any research that excites you in terms of ACL or, or research that you feel like, okay, this is what people need to do. Like this is the kind of sort of questions that I would really like to ask with, with regards to research. Yeah, I think um, a lot of, of, of our research currently is around, you know, what is good and what's not good and, and what leaves you susceptible to injury. And when we rehab you, what changes that can be, we've obviously done a lot of work on, on groin injuries and hamstring injuries and Achilles. And, and um, in ACL, it's, it's, you know, it always comes back to what's the burning question. The burning question is, you know, what does the end look like? Um, and the end being, when have I recovered from this injury? Because th there is no end, you know, there's, there's only what's next after that. And so, um, a, a lot of our work at the minute <clears throat> is trying to, um, I suppose we will put a big focus on, on rehabilitation specific to the individual and their individual deficits. And that's where the lab has been tremendous. Um, but looking at different cohorts now and looking at the risk factors biomechanically for female versus male, but also given the, 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 the size of the data sets that we have, trying to look at using machine learning or more complicated uh, mathematics that's I wouldn't say gently over my head but that other colleagues uh, have greater strength in 
to combine orthopedic data and demographic data and biomechanical data because like we, we always say does Neve Algas do it? Yeah, but are you male or female and what age are you and what's your history and how did you do it? And so what graph did you have? So tr- trying to combine that is, is a huge part of what we're doing. And, and also then one of my colleagues, uh, T. Varanu, is looking at the sensory motor system and how it's influenced after ACL, um, uh, both in terms of changes in proprioception um, and changes in, in visual dependency. Um, partly is you know can it be measured uh, second of all does it even matter or exist and then thirdly is how, how can we change it and it goes back to what we talked about from a coaching point of view obviously how I manipulate your vision it can it be another constraint on the task and, and, and can really uh, challenge you to come up with different strategies or, 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 or different uh, patterns of coordination so um they're the main areas from, from an ACL point of view we're, we're working on currently um, along with, with, with um, return to running post, post uh, ACL. A lot of the, the intervention stuff, it kind of holds less interest to me because intervening to, to what end? So, you know, I only care where you're going. There's, there's lots of ways of getting there. And then just because it worked for, you know, just because it worked for Glenn doesn't mean it'll work for Chris because, you know, individually you may have different strength in there. So I find intervention studies that little bit you know, harder to get excited about. Um, but uh, trying to, to understand, I, my, my greatest fear is I'm always missing something in my assessment. That's my, that's my greatest fear, that I, I'm missing something. You know, you see what you look for and you look for what you know. So if I, if I don't see it, I can't address it. And is that influencing my outcomes? And then my second fear is I can't see it and I'm not changing it. Um, and so that's where having those outcome measures and, and being able to, to, to evolve forward. And um, the other bit I, I'd really like to see done, but I, I don't think will be done for various ethical reasons is there's lots of talk about, you know, the role of conservative management in ACLs. Um, and you see some of that, you, you see some confusion in the dissemination of the message in relation to athletic populations and non-athletic populations. And certainly we, we've had a number and not, not you know, unsubstantial number who, who are querying whether um, you know conservative management is the best course of action despite the fact that they're going back to change direction sports and my first thing to them is well I don't mind you know, rehab is rehab so it's, it's very much up to you so it, it, it make, I have no skin in the game from that point of view but you know a lot of the studies comparing conservative and 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 um, conservative and operative technique you know I mean 50% of those that go for conservative management end up having surgery. Um, many of those that, that have delayed surgery don't go back to the same levels of participation. And, you know, at least in the ACL reg- registry that we have, um, 87% return to play and return to play high demand sport uh, within two years and stay returned uh, to play. So um, it, 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 it'd be really interesting because, and you also hear, you know, about, um, you know, the, the, there's no difference in, in the arthritis, whether you have surgery or not. But like, what you often find is that the people that have reconstruction are come back to far higher demand activities than those that don't have reconstruction. Um, and, you know, I didn't have reconstruction, but, you know, I've had two meniscectomies uh, in, 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 the, in the interim as well. And so, you know, there's no point in, say, in, say, in comparing Ferraris to go-karts and saying, you know, I, I, one had their ACL reconstructed, one didn't. 
but one's driving 200 miles an hour for, you know, three or four or five or six years afterwards. And one is, you know, going for a cycle. you, You can't compare changes in the knee joint when the load hasn't been the same. And so I feel there's a massive study there to be done to compare activity levels and load monitoring along with management strategies and see how that stratifies things. Um, because ultimately the biggest risk for re-injury is the, is the sport you play, or sorry, the level of sport you play. So I imagine that the level of sport you play and the intensity which you train with is going to be a big indicator about any speed of, of progression of, of, of changes within the structure of the knee joint in the medium and the long term as well. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I think we've probably taken up more than enough of your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. If is there um do you have a, a website ender that people could go to, or have you got any specific courses or or resources that you could, you know, signpost people to if they want to find out more about you or about ACL, the ACL work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um I'm not too prolific on social media, but it's at ender underscore king. Um, on Twitter and Instagram and um, I try mostly to promote other people's work on it and some of the research we're doing and um, some of the conferences that, that we hold the sports surgery clinic and CPD that we run um, and I have a personal website as well which is enda-king.com um, and all our research is up there some of my in-person and online courses and um, any other information that I was looking for. And we'll, as as we always do with any guests, we'll we'll link all those in the show notes so people can, uh, if they want to just go onto the show notes, they can link across to that straight straight to that. So, yeah, I want to just say a massive thank you. It's been really really fascinating. Yeah, my pleasure. Big um big thank you from me as well, Ender. It was a a massive influence you had on my my ACL rehab from that uh, podcast and other information that I looked up via yourself. So, yeah, you were unaware of it at the time, but thank you in retrospective of that not, not at all not at all it's, it's, it's great to get the feedback and uh yeah it, it's very much uh, you know it's a work in progress even like uh, a lot that podcast has been you know quite widely listened to but it's just even interesting to you know how your practice evolves and how things move on so it's not like there's a right way and wrong way there's just there's just a better way and we, we keep pushing things along huge thank you to ender for coming on and doing the podcast about acls you can tell he's an absolute expert in the field so it's fascinating to get his take on acl rehab and reconstruction i think hopefully in the future maybe we can get him back on and talk about hips because i know he's really into his hip rehabilitation with athletes as well so i think that'd be another fascinating chat hopefully you guys are really enjoying the content we're putting out there if you are then i would really appreciate a review on itunes or any of your platforms that you listen to podcasts on it really helps the podcast and helps it get out there more there'll be loads of links in the show notes for our website and resources and enders links as well obviously you can check out the web main website on physioplusfitness.com and also physioacademyonline.co.uk really looking forward to the next podcast guys and i will see you on the next one 